Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is the word of the Lord. My favorite Dr. Seuss book is Horton Hears a Who, and that book starts like this. On the 15th of May, in the jungle of Newell, in the heat of the day, in the cool of the pool, he was splashing, enjoying the jungle's great joys, when Horton the elephant heard a small noise. So Horton stopped splashing. He looked towards the sound. That's funny, thought Horton. There's no one around. Then he heard it again, just a very faint yelp, as if some tiny person were calling for help. I'll help you, said Horton, but who are you? Where? He looked and he looked. He could see nothing there but a small speck of dust blowing past through the air. I say, murmured Horton, I've never heard tell of a small speck of dust that is able to yell. So you know what I think? Why, I think that there must be someone on top of that small speck of dust, some sort of a creature of very small size, too small to be seen by an elephant's eyes, some poor little person who's shaking with fear that he'll blow in the pool. He has no way to steer. I'll just have to save him. Because, after all, a person's a person, no matter how small. A person's a person, no matter how small. Dr. Seuss likely spoke more truthfully than he initially intended in that line of that book. That line reflects the truth of what the Bible, Christianity's historic confession and statement of faith, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us all over the place and in the passages that we read together this morning that every single human life is valuable. Every single human life is valuable, no matter how small. And that concept is the theme of our time together this morning as we continue this mini-series on justice by looking at the topic of abortion. Now, remember last week, uh, we laid out sort of a biblical introduction to the idea of justice. And I defined justice like this. It is the action of God that promotes equality and flourishing, that approaches excuse me, that promotes the equality and flourishing of all humanity. And we saw last time that God is just and that God acts justly. 
and that those who love God should imitate him in this, even if in approximate sense. And it's in that spirit that we wade into this topic this morning. So if you're a guest with us today, or if you're newer to the church, you're kind of walking in on a hot button topic day. And um, I just want to just tell you at the outset that I'm aware, keenly aware, that the subject of abortion is very sensitive and very emotional. Um, And I'm also aware that there may be a diversity of opinion on that issue here today. And that's okay. And I'm also aware that there are likely some of you who have been personally affected by abortion in your life. I'm aware of all those things, and I'm going to do my best as the Spirit leads me to be sensitive to all of those things, because this is a hot-button topic that can stir up all manner of feelings. And so some of you might be asking, oh my gosh, I visited on the wrong Sunday. (laughs) Or why in the world am I preaching? Why am I preaching on this? Why abortion? Let me give you three reasons real quick, okay, before we get going. First, the main reason is to help all of you see the deep grace of God. The deep grace of God available for those of us broken by abortion, and I would submit to you that all of us are broken by it in some way. Secondly, to help all of us see the value and the dignity of every single human being. And then lastly, we're talking about this to help you fight. To help you fight for the ending of abortion to the best of your ability. Okay? And last week I talked about how there's just been a personal conviction on my behalf, on my part and on the part of some of our, well, all of our elders to begin to think about these issues and apply the gospel to some of the public issues that are facing us in our day. And so we start that this morning by looking at this subject together. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I'm going to lay out the main idea for you. And then we've got four points as we walk through this topic. So here's the main idea. Because all humans are made in God's image, abortion is an evil an unjust practice that followers of Jesus should work to eradicate. That's the main idea. Because all humans are made in God's image, abortion is an evil and unjust practice that followers of Jesus should work to eradicate. Four ideas for you as we think through that big picture topic today. First, human life made in God's image begins at conception. That's the first point. And one of the foundational truths of the Christian faith that has a major impact on the way that Christians view the world and on the way that we view one another is that human life is made in the image of God. Marianne read from Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28. Now here we read about God's creative activity on the sixth day, the sixth day. And this day represents the culmination of all of God's creation. God makes mankind, men and women. And he says, verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc., etc. And then verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice the repetitive language there. Again and again, the author tells us that man is made, men and women are made, mankind is made in the image of God. Repetitive language in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, is a way of emphasizing, a way of emphasizing something of primary importance. So this is a primarily, fundamentally important topic for the author of Genesis, that mankind is made in the image of God. So what does that mean? What does it mean for men and women to be made in God's image? Well, it means what you likely think it means when you hear that phrase, image of God. What it means is that mankind is a reflection. Mankind is a reflection of God. 
human beings are like God. They're not exactly like God, but they're a reflection of who God is, the fullness of our humanity. Our souls, that is the non-physical part of us, our bodies, the physical part of us, our faculties, that is our wills and our emotions and our hearts and our minds, and our capacity for what theologians have called virtue, that is our capacity for goodness and truth and righteousness and beauty and peace, all of those things combine to separate and distinguish humans from everything else that God made on a qualitative level. Humans are the crowning achievement of God's creation, and humans alone image or reflect God in these ways. We see that not just in Genesis, but in all parts of the scripture. Just as an example from Psalm 8, listen to these verses. What is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. My wife, Marianne, one way that she has often put this to me as we talk about and think about raising our kids together, and I've even heard her say it to other young moms, is that those little people that you're raising, the little people even in the womb, they have eternal souls. <laughs> so when you get frustrated with my kid, when I get frustrated with my kids, often she's said, you know what, we're nourishing someone here, we're raising someone here who's going to live forever. They have an eternal soul. They have dignity and value and worth. They're loved by God. That's a major thread of the Bible. All humanity is made in God's image. And that means that mankind is the most valuable part of God's creation. Listen, every single person, every single person has inherent value, worth, and dignity, okay? Secondly, the Bible teaches clearly that human life made in God's image begins at the moment of conception, Thankfully, modern science is beginning to catch up with what the Bible has always said. And there's overwhelming evidence that life begins at conception and that the unborn child is fully human and not a piece of tissue. To use Horton's language, it's a who and not a what. Just a little bit of scientific evidence and then biblical evidence. So the scientific witness, there's many, many things I could say here. I just want to summarize a couple of big picture points. First... Scientifically, we know that at the moment when a human sperm penetrates a human egg, a new entity comes into existence. A zygote is the name of this first cell that was formed at conception. And the zygote has a DNA, a genetic strand, that is absolutely unique from every other human that has ever existed, including the mother. So genetically, it is a distinct individual from the moment of its creation. Secondly, all of the criteria that physicians and scientists have typically used to establish biological life. Now, there's a varied spectrum of what that means, just as a few examples, brain waves, metabolism, growth, reaction to stimuli, and reproduction, capacity for reproduction. All of those are present in the earliest stages, earliest stages of the development of an embryo. There's a lot more evidence, but one thing that's become clear in recent years is that 3D sonograms have really helped us to recognize this. Because now we have the ability to watch a baby recoil at the prick of a needle. By eight weeks, we know 
We can detect this physically, that all of the organs of a baby are functioning and active. You can see babies dreaming in the womb. We know that their high-functioning brain waves are operative via these sonograms. So the scientific witness is actually compelling and overwhelming. Even some on the side of pro-choice would argue or concede this point. Just as an example, Naomi Wolf, who's a left-leaning author, writes in an article called Our Bodies, Our Souls, which was published a few years ago in the New Republic. She writes this, quote, The abortion rights community should acknowledge the fetus in its full humanity, end quote. And that, quote, abortion causes a real death, end quote. So the scientific witness is very, very clear that even at the earliest stages of its development, the fetus is fully human. But the biblical witness is clear as well. The Bible confirms science. Actually, science confirms the Bible. Uh, And that's why I love the beautiful poetry of that psalm that was read. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, tells us that God knits every single human being who has ever existed together in the mother's womb. Now, this is poetic language. It refers to the physicality of the human, but it also refers to the essence of what it means to be human, to our soul. Pastor Matt Chandler writes this, or says this, what the Bible is arguing is there's a spiritual reality behind conception that is tied to God's sovereign reign and God's desire for your life and mine. I love this Psalm 139 passage because if you want to talk about the intimacy with which God has been involved in every single one of your lives, it's found in this passage. The Bible says here that your personality, your physical stature, all of those things were woven together in your mother's womb for the days that God had for you before you had lived a single one of them. From the day you were conceived and in your mother's womb, your soul and your body have existed as a full human made in God's image, reflecting God's glory, a bearer of God's divine imprint. The Bible is abundantly clear that humans are made in God's image and that human life begins at conception. That's the first point. Secondly, then, to destroy, to intentionally destroy human life after conception in the womb is a form of murder and is therefore unjust. So remember last week, if justice can be defined as the care for the most vulnerable and powerless in a given society, and God cares about the most vulnerable and powerless in a given society, remember his calling card is the God who cares for the fatherless and the widow. If that's true, then the unborn meet that criteria better than anyone else alive. They are completely vulnerable and powerless. And listen, I know, I know that saying that abortion is a form of murder is very strong language. I know that. Um, And some, even on the side of the pro-life movement, want to avoid the language of murder when it comes to abortion. But I just want to lay before you that abortion does clearly meet all of the biblical criteria for murder. It is the unauthorized taking of human life. And I would actually submit to you that we need to use that language. We need to use that language because it reminds us of the stakes. 
the stakes are incredibly high. This issue of justice, I want you to feel it. This issue of justice is catastrophically great. The reason is because every single baby, I knew this was going to happen, every single baby that has been aborted is loved by its creator. God has endowed and invested every single baby that has been aborted with his divine image. The stakes are so high because human lives matter. Black lives matter. White lives matter. Hispanic lives matter. Unborn lives matter. All lives matter. They matter to God. So so what are we doing in our world? Since the passage of Roe v. Wade, 1973, the United States of America has authorized the abortion of over 60 million human beings. Ten times the number murdered in the Holocaust. How can this possibly be? I want to speak to you as clearly and honestly as I can. Um, As someone called to preach the word of God, we believe that non-physical things, spiritual powers are at work in the world. And this is clear evidence that the powers and the principalities The prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, who is at work in the sons of disobedience, has blinded the minds and the hearts of the people of this age. This is demonic activity. It's darkening the hearts of millions upon millions of people so that they call evil good and they call good evil. I came across an article this week uh, that just put this point in stark relief to me. This is an article about uh, the lobstering industry in Switzerland has come under attack recently from particular animal rights activists, lobster rights activists, I suppose. And, and it's become known that when you boil a lobster in boiling water, when you drop the lobster in to cook the lobster, it actually causes the lobster pain. And so animal rights activists have begun to say, we cannot any longer boil lobsters while they're still alive because it causes them too much pain. And listen, this happens in a country where late-term abortion is legal. They're murdering children. And it's okay for, it's not okay though for lobsters to be boiled when crustaceans are sacred and human life is not, something is radically wrong. To intentionally destroy what is scientifically verifiable as human life. And what the Bible clearly calls human life in the womb is unjust. It's wicked. It's horrible. It is the great black mark of our age. And Christians must speak to it and think about it in those terms. Thirdly, I want to handle a couple of objections. First objection, okay? Um, The first objection is the most normal, common objection, and that is that women have a right to choose what is to be done with their body. Women have a right to protect their body. Now, let me just say here, um, I I think I get the heart of this argument. Uh, I also want to say, women have been victimized when cultures start messing around with sexual ethics, like our culture has and like most cultures in the history of the world have. And I totally understand women trying to rise up out of what has been, in some cases, overbearing, ridiculous patriarchy. And so I affirm that there's some good in this. 
But I want to argue that scientifically speaking, this is not your body. It's in your body, but it is not you. At the moment of conception, according to the Bible, a soul is in place. And on top of that, a brand new, completely unique, as we've seen, strand of DNA is birthed miraculously from God out of nowhere, instantaneously at conception. It's not the mom's DNA. It's the baby's DNA. And this new person has rights, namely the right to life. So one answer to that objection is that it's not your body, it's in your body, but it's its own individual. And a second objection is this. None of us have inalienable rights. No person has the inalienable right to do whatever they want with their bodies. Listen, men do not have that right either. Men cannot use their bodies to physically or sexually assault anyone else. Men cannot even use their bodies on their own in particular ways to do whatever they want with it. And women cannot use their bodies in any way they want either. It's unjust for us to use our bodies in any way we want, particularly if it causes harm to someone else. That is not a right that we have. Women do not have the inalienable right to remove a child from their body via abortion if that child is unwanted. The Christian philosopher Stanley Hauerwas has written this. Listen to what he says. I want to argue that America is the only country that has the misfortune of being founded on a philosophical mistake. Namely, the notion of inalienable rights. We Christians do not believe that we have inalienable rights. That is the false presumption of enlightenment individualism, and it opposes everything that Christians believe about what it means to be a creature. Notice that the issue is inalienable rights. Christians, to be more specific, do not believe that we have a right to do with our bodies whatever we want. We do not believe that we have a right to our bodies because when we are baptized, we become members of one another. Then we can tell one another what it is that we should and should not do with our bodies. So women's right to choose is an argument that should be answered, I think, biblically with the idea that no one has the right to take another life. And secondly, no one has inalienable rights to do whatever we want with our bodies. A second objection is one that I've been hearing a good bit recently, and that objection is this. Abortions, will, abortions are going to happen anyway, and so they should be kept legal to prevent really, really unsanitary and unsafe abortions happening. So let me say to that, that it is likely true, it is likely true that if abortion were illegal, they would still occur. However, it's also likely true that the illegality of abortion would greatly reduce the total number. But more importantly, it does not follow and is very, very poor logic to argue that an unjust activity which is legal will continue even if made illegal, therefore we should not make it illegal. Let me repeat that. It is bad logic to argue that an unjust activity, which is legal, will continue even, even if made illegal. Therefore, we should not make it illegal. It doesn't follow because the law should reflect what is right. Law is not arbitrary. Law is actually also intended to be a reflection of God and his perfect character. And furthermore, it doesn't follow because law, especially the law of the civil magistrate of the state, according to the Bible, is not intended to make this world perfect. It can't do that. 
Romans 13 tells us that it's intended rather to restrain evil. That's the purpose of the civil magistrate. And it seems that abortion being made illegal would more greatly restrain evil, and therefore it doesn't follow to say that it should remain legal because they will still occur anyways. A third point really quickly, and this is just a question, and the question is this, is abortion ever acceptable? Now, I'm not going to say much about this except one thing. Here's my position, which I believe can be argued from the Bible. I support any medical action which intends to protect and promote life, even if the unintended consequences of the loss of life ensue. And I'm opposed to any medical action which either intends to harm or end life or will obviously do so as a result of the intervention. There's all kinds of Christian websites that you can Google very easily to get good answers to that question. So those are a couple of objections, and I want to close with just a couple of things regarding the gospel and abortion. The gospel and abortion, okay? Um, We need to just say and recognize, and I think some of us undoubtedly know, that great suffering and shame and guilt and brokenness accompany this issue. Some of you are undoubtedly affected by this issue personally. Perhaps you've had an abortion. Perhaps you've had an abortion and you've never told anyone. Perhaps you're close to someone who has had an abortion. We believe deeply and strongly here that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Jesus Christ came into the world to love and to renew the broken and the ashamed and the guilty. And we know this because Jesus himself was one of the unborn. God, in his great mercy, became a fetus to rescue a world that claims that the fetus does not matter if it inconveniences the more powerful. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died to defeat the evil one who is powerfully at work through this issue. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquers all evil. One day, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to make right everything that's wrong in this world, even this wrong. And I fully expect that in some way in the great justice and compassion of God, the millions upon millions upon millions of children that have suffered the grievous injustice of the loss of life by abortion will be with us in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will watch them live the lives that they were robbed of in this world. I came across this this week. As I'm just closing up here, I promise. Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is a poem recounting the history of Israel. And in Psalm 106, verses 34 through 38, we read this. Referring to the people of Israel. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. The Israelites sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. It's a pretty harsh condemnation from the Lord to his people. But what do we read? The psalm doesn't end there. In verse 44, God says this, or Moses says this. Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. He relented 
according to the abundance of his steadfast love, he caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. Listen, this is a great moral injustice, but the grace of God is more powerful still. And his grace is available for those of you who have been personally affected by this issue. And the last thing I want to say is that because we believe the gospel, if you're here and you're a Christian and you believe that God is just, you are called to work for proximate justice in your own day. That's what Horton does, actually, in Horton Hears a Who. He had a conviction that life existed on the speck of dust and that that life was valuable. A person's a person, no matter how small. He believed that. And this conviction led Horton to action. In the story, he fights and he perseveres and he argues and he overcomes incredible odds to save Whoville. Notice it's Whoville and not Whatville. And that is our calling as well. So what can we do? Again, I don't want to say much here because you can figure that out on your own. But I want to just tell you three quick things. First, we should pray and lament. We should grieve and mourn before God. Second, we should engage with those who are helping to eradicate abortion in our age. Resources for Women, Will mentioned earlier, I'd love for you to go and meet them at the table afterwards. It's a great organization right here in our part of the town that we partner with and support. And then thirdly, I want you to engage wisely in the legislative process. Now, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I can't do that. And even if I could, I wouldn't. Um, But I will say that this is a prime issue and that you need to consider it strongly when you think about voting or not voting. Martin Niemöller was a German pastor who lived in the 50s, and uh, he wrote a poem that has become quite famous. It's actually inscribed on a piece of stone at the the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And uh, the poem goes like this. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. The question for you if you follow Jesus is, will you speak about this issue? Because justice actually demands it. God's grace is sufficient. God's love is matchless. And because of that, we are called to move forward with compassion and with love and with justice. To fight for the ending of this great evil in our age. Let me pray.